Welcome to MyPersonalFootballCoach.com's Soccer Player Development Podcast. Discover all the secrets, hints and tips about soccer player development and soccer coaching from some of the leading figures in world soccer. Here's your host, Saul Isaacson-Hurst. Hi guys, Saul here, back again. Uh, today we've got a fantastic guest, I'm really excited. It's Rasmus Ankerson, who's currently the Director of Football at Brentford FC in London in the Championship, and he's also Chairman of Mitterland in uh, Denmark. He's uh, maybe more famously known for his work with uh, Moneyball, if you like, um, although I know they don't like that term, but using statistics to their advantage, using um, different ways to try and get a get uh, ahead of the opposition maybe with uh, with uh, the opposition having more money than they have so using inventive ways to try and uh, give themselves an advantage uh, he's got lots of fantastic knowledge to share i was really uh, really really interested in this one this is uh, definitely one of my favorites because it does come from not just the coaching perspective he talks about all aspects of uh, working at a club uh, he also talks about academy football as well in Midland and brentford and obviously the controversy around the Brentford Academy as well so it's a really interesting one I know you're going to enjoy it it's uh, it's a really good one uh, my my from my point uh, my point of view so good to be back in the country now for a good uh, few weeks we've got lots of quality podcasts coming up some really great guests um, I'm really privileged all these people agreeing to come on the show so please stay tuned um, in terms of what's happening with the site we've got the coaches pass uh, aimed at coaches um, so Ryan Hall we're really privileged to have him aboard he uh, used to work at Tottenham in the academy pre-academy coordinator academy head coach and Ryan and myself um, trying to get lots of quality content out there for you guys ball mastery and 1v1 specific and we've got lots of guests as well uh, giving some uh, some of their sessions um, the dynamic ball mastery program the online homework training also going strong uh, in 20 countries and also working with several clubs around the world uh, if you're interested in being a partner club and giving your players that top quality homework uh, online technical program just give us a bell get in touch and we can help sort that out but so uh, without further ado hope you enjoy the show so Rasmus Ankerson welcome to the show thanks very much so can you just give us a brief um, background about your playing, coaching and, and your career in football up to this point? Well, I started out in, uh, in Denmark uh, with a dream of becoming a professional footballer, but um, unfortunately I, um, I got an injury. First, first senior game when I was uh, 19 after 15 minutes and um, that, that brought me out of the game for a long time. So um, then I became um, the, one of these frustrated, injured uh, players with unreleased ambitions that then became a coach. And, um, and I started my coaching career as, a, as an under-19 coach at FC Midtjylland, where I'm, where I'm the chairman today. And, um, and then after a few years, I, I, went out of, um, I went out of football. I felt that uh, um, you know, there, was, there was a lot to be learned from other industries, from, from business. So I became an entrepreneur and built a few companies and Wrote a few books and and then yeah so four years ago I came back into football uh, and again in a in a in a more uh, yeah senior management role. And so what what is that? Just tell the, all the listeners what your current role is. Yeah, so I'm um, I'm the chairman of uh, my childhood club FC Midula, and uh, then I am the co-director of football at Brentford in West London, and uh, both clubs are owned by uh, 
by the same guy, Matthew Benham. So uh, that's where I spent the majority of my time today. And so can you just tell us then a little bit about that from making your transition from um, player to coach at Mitterland? Well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I was never, I think, I was never as a, as, a, as a player, I was never super talented. I mean, I was not, I was not very natural gifted, so I, I had to think a lot about how I could improve, you know. I think... I think that's a good good uh, starting point for becoming a coach. Is, is if you if you if you've been too good too early, then you don't really need to reflect and to, to think about how you can improve. So I thought a lot uh, about especially the the mental side of the game and 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 how I could improve that. And and I think that you know when I when I then got injured, it was it was kind of obvious to me that I wanted to do a uh, you know something from the coaching side. So. Uh, I did a big project. I did a big project um, uh, on on mental training. I called it the mental muscle at the time, which was uh, based on uh, me um, going around to different top world class athletes in in different sports, interviewing them, and and based on my my findings, then I put together a a, a program that I, I taught at the Midland Academy. So. Yeah, I think then it was a natural transition for me, um, and um, and and probably because uh, in my playing career I had to I had to uh, because of my lack of talent I had to think a lot about how uh, how, how how things worked and, and how I could improve. So how did you make that progression from uh, young coach to chairman of the club? Well, it's, it was really you know one of those serendipity moments, uh, you know. Was the, the train you don't catch to change your life, right? It's uh, I was uh, I, I was an entrepreneur in Denmark. I uh, I published books. I wrote books on, on leadership, on management, and and uh, I wrote this book called The Goldmine Effect, which was um, me traveling around the world uh, for six months to live and train in small environments that. Um, that, that produce a disproportionate amount of top talent. So like the best middle distance runners in the world come from the same village in Ethiopia. The best sprinters in the world come from the same athletic club in Kingston, Jamaica. So I found six places and I traveled around for six months. I published the book in Denmark and I wanted to see if I could have global impact with the book. So I was moving to London to find a publisher, which I did, and the book was published in, uh, in the UK. And, um, and then... Some years back, I gave a, I gave a talk about the book um, at, a, at a, actually at a, a birthday party in uh, in Copenhagen, and uh, at that um, at that event, there was a there was a woman in the audience who had a cousin that knew Matthew Bennett, who owned Brentford, and uh, those two women they 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 you know were together and they 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 stayed up speaking about you know this one woman had heard me speak and. I spoke about recruitment, I think, and the other woman said, well, I know this guy from uh, London, you know, he thinks very different about football and he's got some challenges recruitment, why don't we bring these two guys together? So that is what happened and, uh, and then I ended up uh, meeting Matthew Benham and I did some consulting work for him um, uh, for a while and, uh, and, and then one day we had, a, we, had a, we had a lunch in Soho, I remember, and he said to me, you want to join another football club and he really wanted, he had some... Like quite radical ideas about how how things could be done different in football, and he wanted to test that. So um, I said, "Why don't you take a look at my childhood club, which was Midtjylland, based in the middle of nowhere in Western Denmark?" And they were Midtjylland was almost bankrupt at the time. So I think that's a good starting point for change. Right, if you're bankrupt, you're you're open to change. 
So we went there, had a look at the club, and then eventually he bought the club and they made, and made him the chairman. So when that happened, I sent a, I sent a message to that woman who introduced us and said, well, this is, this is actually one of the introductions that actually turned out to, to, to create something. So thanks for that. So, uh, yeah, so it was, um, it was uh, I, I think I always felt I wanted to come back into football, um, even when I was out of football for 10 years, being an entrepreneur. But I also wanted to come back with a different different baggage of experience um, from, from business, which I felt that could be brought back into football. Fantastic. So, I mean, so it's, it's quite an interesting story, an inspiring one as well. So, I mean, the, actually the club you talk about was close to bankruptcy, but... You then went to winning the league in one season. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, the the club was. The, I knew there was a lot of good people in the club. There was a really strong tradition for talent development. It's a it's a really unique uh, talent environment. Uh, I think one of the best academies in Europe. And the last few years, you know, um, you know, the, the under nineteen team has beaten. Uh, yeah, this year, Anderlecht, the Belgian champion, uh, Malaga, the Spanish champion, and. Uh, and Atletico Madrid last season in the Youth Champions League. And it's quite a unique and spectacular because this club is based in the middle of nowhere. There's not a lot of people living there. So I knew there was a really good foundation. So I felt that it would be a good investment for Matthew. Um, it was a club that had spent, because they were running out of money and you know they had to play the young players. And they, they, had a, they got a lot of experience those players because they played regularly for two years. So I thought, well, if you if you go in and you 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 add some investment to that and bring in a few more experienced players, then you could actually have something that could compete for the championship. And um, and that's the thing, right? I I often say that the best the best talent developers in the world that's the that's the that's the, that's the clubs that are close to bankruptcy because then you don't have a choice; you have to play the young players. And um, like I, I think the, the the generation, the golden generation, Southampton created with with Gareth Bale and Lalana and Luke Shaw and so on. I mean, why did why why did they develop them? Well, they were almost an administration, so so they had to play them. So the same thing was with Midland; they were forced to play those young guys, and uh, and uh, and then we 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 did what no one expected. We won the championship the first season, and we qualified for Europa League by actually beating Southampton. In the, in the last qualification game to get into the group play and we qualified we became second after Napoli in the in the group play and then we played this game against Man United in the in the knockout phase and, and after two months winter break we 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 shockingly won the first game at home and uh, unfortunately lost at Old Trafford uh, but uh, and, and they knocked us out but that was that was truly an adventure for the club and, and I think something that really put the the, the club on the on the world map. So let's looking at that club. So let's have a look at first team first, and then we'll go back to the academy because I'm really interested in that as well. Yeah. Just obviously, you're you're, you're known quite a lot about you know associated with using data in football. I mean, I know you guys don't like the term moneyball, mm. but I mean, uh, just can you tell us what sort of changes did you make at the club? With, you know, with the use of data, and what did you go and what sort of things did you do to change the, the way the club was being run? Well, I mean, when I was in, in school, I hated mathematics. So it was never, never. I never felt that was going to be, um, that was going to be my thing until I met uh, Matt Benham, who's um, who's a gambler, and uh, and and not not one of those amateur gamblers that plays a, a bit every every Saturday, but actually a, a pro, really pro, who um, who has um, uh, basically made his made made his living and made a lot of money on that, and he and he kind of speaking to him, he he made me realize that. 
that some of the brightest guys in football, they don't work for the football club. So I think they, they work in the gambling industry. And the way they look at football is, 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 is very different. So we try to take a lot of that knowledge that he's generated, and not all of it can be applied to a football club, but, but, uh, but also a lot of it can, actually. So we, um, it, you know, the media always want a, a simple narrative. So it becomes uh, Brentford and Midtjylland are all about data. There's no human involvement in decisions. Um, so, but it's, it's not really true. I mean, every, every process is a, is a combination of objective and, and subjective information you put together when you make decisions. But it's, it's true that data is a, is a key part of what we're trying to do. And it really comes down to the fact that we're both small clubs compared to our competitors. So we can't win by outspending the competition. We have to outthink them. And, um, and we used to say that if, if David has to beat Goliath, then he has to use different weapons. And, and analytics data is a, is a different weapon. So can, can you give us any examples of that? I mean, yeah, I mean, like one, one really relevant things. example right now is that, you know, this is something that, that football people tend to, to push very, very hard against when you, when you, when you, when you say this. But uh, because football is a, is a, is a, is a, football is a very random game. Like, there's a lot more randomness in football than in, than in basketball, for example. And the reason is that football is a low-scoring game. So there's not a lot of full goals in football. And that means that the, the fewer goals there is in a sport, the more impact random events have, like the, the ball getting deflected and spins into the net or the referee making a wrong call in the last minute. And, and because of that randomness in football, it means that the best team wins less often in football than in, a, for example, a high-scoring sport like basketball. And, and ultimately, this, is, this means that the league table lies. Obviously, that goes again, all conventional wisdom in football, because we hear again and again, the league table never lies. But this is what a game understands. You know, he understands the league table almost always lies. Obviously, it lies more after 10 games than it does after 20 games. But even after a full season, which is like, let's say, 38 games, that's a, a statistically a small sample size. It's not enough to, uh, to strip up the randomness. So, um, so that means that when we evaluate the strength of a team, and we don't look at, or when we evaluate how well we are doing, we don't really look at so much at where we are in the league table, but we look at the underlying rating you know, that we put together, which we think is much more predictive for where we are going than, than, um, than, than the, our league, current league table position. So a couple of ex- like specific examples, because this, is, this can be easy to say, but difficult to manage in, in reality. So you get basically got two, from a management point of view, you've got two scenarios that are tricky to deal with. You've got a scenario where you get a lot more than you, know, you deserve. Because we know that just down to randomness, the, pain, the same performance, you know, your number of points can swing 15 points one way or the other, just down to randomness throughout the season, maybe even more. So sometimes you get more than you deserve, but if your performance is justified, sometimes you get less than your performance is justified. If you get more, then you are likely to underestimate the need for change. If you get a lot less than you deserve, you are likely to overestimate the need for change. Tonight, Midland is playing one knockout game to uh, against another Danish team to see if we get into the European League next, next season. We finished fourth in the table, which to most people um, looking at it was very disappointing because we should be able to compete for top, top three. But 
our underlying ratings tells us it's as high as it's ever been. You know, we we think that we should have, you know, if, if we hadn't been that unlucky with, you know, randomness working against us, then then we would have maybe finished second. So so we had a position where everyone else said, well, the league table never lies, so, you know, you should sack the coach. Where we are saying, actually, the coach is doing a really good job. And we think that if we can add additions to the team and if we can, you know, keep building on what we have, we can really, really be good next season. So we use that internal rating as the primary factor to make decisions on whether we're going to drive change or not drive change. That is the primary, you know, the coach knows that this is what he's being measured on because this is what he can control. Um, and I think we try and make that um, part of the culture of the club. So, so I mean, you say the, the league table lies, you mean, I mean, because of, of the randomness, it's not really given a true yeah. effect of what's happening in, in, the, yeah. in the game. You saw Reading, Reading in, uh, in this, this, this season in the championship, Reading came to the final of the playoffs and always uh, got to the Premier League. But, uh, you know, I think if you ask guys at Reading, they will, they will feel this intuitively as well. But, but uh, they're, they're under, the underlying performance this season by Reading hasn't, hasn't you know, hasn't, in, in very few scenarios they would have got to the playoffs. But um, that's, how this, that's just how randomness works. Um, yeah, and uh, I think that's really difficult for people to accept because the brain is designed to wanting to find patterns. Um, you know, and even when there is no patterns, we want to find patterns and we want a story, you know. So in, in Midland, we have a very calm coach who's, who's, who's from a tactical point of view. I think he's bright, but he's calm, you know. And when we're winning, it's because he is so calm and he can, he can, he can transfer that calmness to the team and, you know, they never panic. And when we lose again, it's because um, it's because that uh, you know he can motivate the team. He's too cap, you know. He's he's not aggressive enough, you know. And that's why I mean, we always fit the story to the outcome, and 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 we always assume that good results always comes from good decisions and good performance. And in 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 a sport or in a discipline like football, where where there's so much randomness, this, that's just not true. But it's it's uh, it's it's something. Um, that the majority of people in football just don't uh, want to understand, I think. So, I mean, that brings us along nicely then to, you know, the fact that you're going to try and control the things you can control, right, the variables. So, I mean, an interesting stat was in that, 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 that year you won the league that you scored more set pieces uh, than anyone else in Europe, yeah. apart from Atletico Madrid, I think. It was the joint top with those guys. Yeah. So, I mean, what, how, did that, how did that come about? Was that conscious, obviously, to focus on that, thinking that this is something we can control and yeah. the randomness? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's, that's, um, we, we believe that the uh, uh, set place was such an, such an opportunity in, in, in football. We think so many, like 35% of goals in the Premier League are scored on set pieces, but most teams spend 10 minutes training set pieces a week. You know, could you imagine a company that has spent 10, you know, a very small amount of his time on 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 an activity that generates uh, almost fifty percent of their revenue. I mean, that wouldn't make sense, but that apparently makes sense in football. So it's 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 a way of trying to look at how is the game played today, where are the inefficiencies, and how can you exploit them, and uh, and that led us to really 
really focus on on set plays and strategies and you know in American football that's that's you know a, a player has to learn 200 new plays set plays every 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 year in his playbook why can a football player not learn 10 or 5 maybe so it's just about trying to put together a system like you know you know trying to maximize the output of those opportunities and 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 we spend in both clubs. We spend a lot of time on that, and I think the in in, in Midland, it's been it's been hugely successful. Even this season, it's been hugely successful. So, so could could you quantify that at all to us? How much actual time do the guys spend on set pieces and and doing those that that set piece homework? There's lot, lots of different lots of different types of set plays, set piece training. I mean, there's there's the theoretical part, you know. Learning the learning, you know, the system, you know, which what do we call different zones, you know, signals. There's there's basically three parts to it. There's the there's the movement in the box, there's the delivery, and then there's the decision on um, on 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 which where, where which 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 routine are you gonna do for, for, for this particular set, set set piece. So there's a there's a there's a training that training that goes into each of those three areas. You know, says delivery. We we we, we got a we got a ball striking coach. You know, that works a lot with those guys. Uh, we got you know a, a set piece coach that comes up with new strategies and teach players the you know the the, 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 the you know the, the different the different movement blocks, all these kind of things that that makes a, an effective set set piece. And we got a, we got what we call a quarterback, like a guy that makes the call on on where is the ball going to go. And uh, and we kind of train, try and train him to to um, to make the, the the right the right calls. So it really is similar to American style sports, isn't it? American football and basketball when they're calling plays out there on the pitch, and like say they they've got a big playbook to go from. Yeah, very similar. We think there's a lot to to be learned from American football. So you mentioned there the ball striking coach. Can you just tell us a little bit about his role? Obviously, I'm a technical coach. I was quite interested when I read that. Does he work specifically with the set pieces, or does he work with ball striking across the club and the academy? He works with um, primarily direct free kicks, so ball striking in relation to that. Uh, but he also works with um, you know general ball striking, you know open play, open play strikes. Uh, uh, delivery from lateral free kicks and from from corners, but primarily uh, direct free kicks. And it, it it was just another way of trying to find an edge because we um, we we felt that like if you look at golf for example, a golf player works with his swing in, in a lot of detail. Uh, but why doesn't a football player work with his swing? I mean, it's kind of taken taken for granted. But actually, there's a lot there's a lot to you can you you can do there to to improve and. I think we may have been successful with that with our academy in, in Midland. I mean, we got a we got a couple of guys now that are uh, scoring like five or six goals every every season on direct free kicks, um, and a lot of it comes down to this training. So it's, it's it's just another another way of trying to 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 come up with something that's different, but also something from a financial perspective that could potentially increase the market value of your players. And so, so talking about your academy, then moving on to that. So, um, am I right to believe that you were the first in Denmark to have a, a proper full-time full academy? In yeah, yeah. But I mean, back then, fifteen years ago, I mean, the, the youth players were training three times a week, and and then we came and said, well, why, why don't we train seven, eight times a week, and uh, and build the academy, you know, based on that. And uh, we couldn't really attract the best talent in the first place, so we had to. Um, you know, we had to basically recruit whatever we could get, and and we um, we um, 
And I, mean, I remember we said that we, Klaus Steinlein, who's the director of football now in, in, in Midland, he, um, he made this, uh, this, this, he said this target that in, we started the academy in 2005 and in 2010 we wanted to produce two players for the World Cup in South Africa. And uh, he really was hammering that ambition into the, into the organization and people kind of felt it was impossible at the time. But actually, um, in the end, we managed to, um, to do it. So Winston Reed, who plays in West Ham today, um, uh, he, he, he represented New Zealand at the World Cup and, and uh, Simon Kerr, who plays in uh, Fenerbahce. He, um, he he represented Denmark, so uh, so we, we made that and obviously created you know developed a lot more national team players since then, uh, but um, but yeah it was a, it was a, it's a, it's a, in my opinion it's a, it's a it's a really unique academy and if there's one thing that makes uh, and special is is that academy more more so than the the, the whole analytic part. And so so tell us a bit about for instance then Winston Reid. What's his story? How did he end up at the club? Uh, so he was one. Of, he was one of the first age group that uh, we recruited, and um, he was a big. I remember he was a big boy down from the southern Denmark. You know, he was big, not 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 super talented, but um, but um, you know we felt you know, <laughs> partly it was probably the best we could get at that time. Uh, but also we felt there was something there. You know, he had a his 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 physique was so strong that we felt he might be bigger and more early mature than his, his mates at the moment, but we also felt that it was probably not just a temporary, but a lasting physical advances that he had. So uh, that, was, that was one of the ideas behind uh, recruiting him. And, um, and uh, you know, eventually he, went up, he, he, he ended up being very successful and we sold him to, to West Ham. Uh, Simon Kerr was, a, was an interesting one because, um, you know, we, no one really saw that coming. I mean, we were... I remember when he was 15, we did, we, did a, we did an exercise. So all the coaches in the academy, including myself, we wrote down, each of us, on a piece of paper, the names of the five players we, we thought would be the best fighters in the future from the academy. And we had 16 players at the time, so we had to pick five. And then we did that, and we put all the pieces of paper into an envelope. And then five years later, we, we opened that envelope again, and, and no one had Simon among the five, you know. So it, it, it is quite interesting, you know, that... And I think that's 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 a that's a key thing with spotting talent. I mean, no one gets it right all the time. For me, recruitment or spotting talent is is not about being right all the time. It's it's about being less and less wrong because you will always be wrong. And so, and so, what age group do you, do you start getting players into the academy? What, what's the what, what age? 50, uh, yeah, well, they're fifteen, but obviously there's a pre-academy um, where you know. Midland is based there. It's not like London where there's so much competition around the talent. Midland is there's also a lot more people in London, but but Midland is in a is in an area where the club has kind of dominance because it's the main club. Um, so um, so we can we can actually uh, have the players stay in their original small clubs um, for for until they're, they're they're 15 years old. And then we get them in regularly on a weekly basis, train with us, and we monitor their development. And then when they think they turn 50, we, we, we make our picks in terms of uh, who do we think has the, has the potential to make it. So, I mean, I mean, we'll move on to this in a minute, obviously, with your work at Brentford. But I mean, what do you, what's your thoughts then on like, clubs in London or in, in England who recruit at and get players in at eight years old? I think it's, uh, in, in, to, 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 to some extent, they need to do that because there's so much competition. And... 
but um, but I don't necessarily think it's it's the best way of doing self development. Um, but but sometimes the market forces you to do something that 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 is not ideal because of the competitive situation. And I mean that's the thing. Maybe we come back to that. But that was the thing we looked at with Brentford a year ago, and, and we felt that it was very difficult for us to compete in that in that market, and we had to we had to do something really different to 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 um, to uh, to get an edge. So, so let's coming on to Brentford then. Let's let's address that then. So you yeah. have to do something. Really, I, I read somewhere as well that was the, like me and Carlo going to to Man City. That was like almost like yeah. the, uh, the straw that broke the camel's back, almost as if it was the sign to make a change. Yeah, I mean, I think the the, the compensation rules in English football are heavily in favour of uh, big clubs um, and probably designed by big clubs um, as part of that deal between the the Premier League and Football League. But uh, I think I feel like. You know, we, what is an academy going to do? An academy has, in my opinion, two purposes. It's, it's, it's got to produce first-team players and it's got to maybe become a profit center. And, and in Brentford, we didn't manage to, to do any of that. And so we had, to, we, had to look at, we had to look at the academy. And uh, we said, well, actually, when, when these guys, when we, when we have a good talent, we think can make it, then he turns 17 and we need to sign him on a professional contract. But then the big clubs, they like some. Chelsea and Man City comes in and, and uh, you know offer a lot more money to the player and the agent and there's there's not nothing we can do and we get very little compensation less than, than we spend on actually developing the player. So it was just a bad uh, it was just a bad business to be honest and um, and we had to look at the costs and we had to look at you know how can we be different and we we, we realized we were never going to compete with the with the likes of Chelsea and Man City in in London. Um, because Man City spends a lot of money, you know, every year just scouting youth players a lot, a lot of money, more than we our academy costs, I think. So, so we we said, okay, it's like having a business. Let's look at it from that perspective. If you selling a shampoo and uh, your shampoo is in the supermarket and someone is going to buy that shampoo, or, you know, it has to be different. So we said, how can we then be different? And we thought a lot about that and we explored you know the options of we were a category two academy of going category one, going category three, going category four. But in the end we felt the best thing was to completely opt out of the system. So what that meant was that we said we don't want to play the, the that, that games program anymore. We wanna we wanna we wanna um, we wanna do our own games program. And, uh, and because we think we can put a games program together that's a lot better than the, than, than playing against Category 2 and Category 3 academies. And we also said that we don't want to run a full academy, like from under age, because uh, we want to be really good at one age group. And we want to run a B team, which is 17 to 20, specialize in that age group, and run that group with a really close link to the first team. And and, um, and and we will run it so you get as close to being a first team as possible. That way, you know, the way we set up the medical department around them. So, so that was always a very tough decision because we had to make a lot of the staff redundant. We had to uh, release a lot of players. Um, uh, but we felt for, for, for the future of Brentford, that was the right thing to do now. And there's been kind of three project, three keys to the project, but because I think it's been a big success the first year. The first thing was to put together a really strong games program. So rather than playing Stevenage and Bolton this year, we played Bayern Munich, Man City, Man United, Liverpool, Valencia, Villarreal, 
Um, so obviously a really strong uh, games program. Uh, Recruitment-wise, we said, okay, um, how do we recruit when they're 17? I mean, obviously there's less risk recruiting a player when he's 17 than when he's seven. Uh, you have a better idea if this guy is going to make it or not. Um, so we looked at the numbers for how many players are released by Category 1 and Premier League Academy every year, and that's a lot. It's a big percentage. So we said, why don't we, instead of fighting against these guys, why don't we try and build good relationships with them so we can pick up those guys that won't make it in Man City and Chelsea. Um, and, uh, and, um, and then we make a deal where that club has still a part of the upside if it, if it goes well, and then it comes into our, our BT. Because as you will know, there's a lot of the Jamie Vardy's out there, right? The people who've been rejected, and then the, you know, there's there's so many factors that decide whether a player is going to break through or not. And even at age 17, it's, it's tough to tell who's going to make it and who's not. So, so recruitment, we had, a, you know, we, we looked at a lot of these what I what I, I used to call them rejects from the big clubs, and then we we decided to look overseas because we felt that. Uh, for the best players in, say, Austria, Denmark, Norway, Sweden, some of those markets, the very best talent there would see Brentford as a pathway to Premier League and a more effective pathway than actually signing with a Premier League club because, um, because you know, getting experience in the championship um, would, would be easier to get to Premier League through that way than, than, than going through, um, you know, Bundesliga or, or, or first team football in, in Denmark or Sweden or whatever. And then the last uh, part of the strategy was was to create a pathway to the first team. And uh, so we made some really clear guidelines for how many how many training days do our B team players need to have with the first team, you know, how many how many match days, you know, sitting on the bench, you know, things like that. We made some really clear guidelines for that and you know, the first team coaches that kind of have to uh, apply to that. Um, and and it's been a success. So we had four debuts in the first team last season and and we really managed to create that, that pathway, which I think is 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 so difficult because and it's a, it's a decision that often has to be taken by senior management because a lot of coaches we have a really good coach in, in this respect, but I think a lot of good a lot of coaches they they um, they think so short term that they they are not prepared to take the risks of bringing a, a young player into the team. So, and so did you? I mean, have you got what, what are your short term and long term targets for that project? Particularly about you know you talked about four players in the team this year. Was that the target, or what's what's the long term targets for it? Yeah, well, the long term target. I think we we take it a, a bit year by year now and try and try and replicate the success next year with the games program and with the improvement. But we want to raise the level of the players we recruit. So. Uh, the, the the target is, is 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 for sure to 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 get more players into the first team, but also the guys that don't make it to the first team, we will be able to somehow financially capitalize better on them by putting them on loan and 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 outplace them to 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 uh, to maybe other markets, other leagues. So there's a few there's a few we look at it as a business because I think an academy is a business and uh, and and we as any other business you gotta want to try and make it profitable. Um, like, yeah, well, like in Midland, we have a more specific target because it's a more well-established academy. So we have a, we have a. I, I basically set three targets for the football department in Midland. It's it's one, we gotta qualify for the Europa League group play uh, three times before 2020, and we have to uh, secondly uh, make a profit of of X million euros 
which I can't give you that exact number, but you got to do that every every year. And then the third thing is that 40% of all playing minutes in the first team must be played by academy players. And that's another way of making that choice because it's the DNA of the club and I don't want any short-term thinking coach to come in and say, listen, I'm just going to, I'm just going to, um, uh, you know, ditch. I don't care about the, 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 the club's academy. You know, he's got to buy into that. And, 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 and we want to push ourselves to, to make those bold decisions about playing those youngsters, even though you never really know if they're ready before they played 35 games or something like that. What do you think about the English, um, uh, you know, English scene at the moment in terms of the conversation a lot of this podcast with people who work within football talking about the uh, barrier for young players to get opportunities? What do you think? What's your thoughts on you know, the Premier League, the Championship? Uh, about the, the the limitations maybe on opportunities for young players, and is that affecting you know the English game on a bigger scale? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the biggest problem in English football in that respect is uh, the managerial uh, structure, where you have a manager that's responsible for the first team as well as the whole football strategy and transfers. And uh, because you you just need to look at the average lifespan of a, a manager. I think in Premier League, uh, Champions is probably fourteen months or something like that. I mean, our, our, our head coach in Brentford has been in charge for a bit more than a year and a half now and, and he's always already one of the longest serving managers in the, in the championship. But, 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 but having a structure where the manager is the king, you know, making, making all these decisions is, is the wrong thing if you want to have youth development because especially if a manager knows that if he loses two games, he's going to be sacked. What is he going to do? He's, he's going to think about how to win the game on Saturday. But if all key decisions in a football club is made with the time horizon of one week, you know, you're never going to move forward. You're never going to give young players a chance. So it comes down to, in my opinion, clubs being strong on the philosophy. Uh, do they really want to do talent development or do they not want to want to? Um, and talent development is not putting players, young players on the bench. And that's why I said in Midland, it's not on the bench. It's 40% of playing minutes must be played by academic players. So you got to make that conscious decision. I think it helps if you have a, 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 a director of football structure where, and a head coach, where the head coach is obviously responsible for, for winning the games, but the, 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 the director of football is responsible for the immediate, mid to long-term strategy of the club. Because otherwise you get a very short-term thinking club, and I don't think that helps, uh, helps this problem. I suppose the next question would be then, so when do you make the decision to change manager? What's the you know, what would be the the last straw there when you make that difficult decision? When when when, when we do that? Yeah, I mean you say you know because obviously you, you you really want to encourage that long term thinking, but I mean obviously there's yeah. probably sometimes you've had to make that decision and 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 change manager or coach. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, there's yeah, we've done that as well. And I mean, it's it's. I mean, the the way I look at this is you got to really know what kind of manager you want and what kind of manager. You, are the, the, you know, we have a very clearly defined philosophy in terms of style of play, in terms of what we think can be our competitive edges. And first thing is for us, for 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 the head coach to buy into that. We really need to feel that he buys into that for him to be the head coach of us, because it's not about some ego project for for the head coach. It's about being part of that project. Um, and, and and I'm not saying that it's the only way to go, but that it's the right way. That's what we have decided in our clubs to to go to go down that route. Um, and 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 
and many I, I often say and that comes back to our our, our internal ratings, you know, a head coach in Midland and Brentford will not be sacked because of his lead tail position, you know. He, he but he can't be sacked if he doesn't improve the underlying rating because we, we know that that is a big indication for where we're going and, and also you know it gives us a if, if we improve that rating, then we will increase the probability of actually, you know, reaching our targets at the table as well. There's a there's a clear correlation there. So it's it it it's you know, but but coaches coaches um, has to have a short term view in some respects. They have to think about how to win the next game. But for me, the most important way that he buys into the club's philosophy, and and then obviously, uh, if you want if you want someone to bring young players through. And give young players a chance. Then, then you and you want to encourage that, but you also need to give the man, the, the head coach, some kind of certainty that that if he does that and it doesn't work out with a young player, then you're not going to kick him out right away because then he will never do it again. So it's just give and take in that respect, I think. And um, and um, yeah. So, but you evaluate as I, I think in my role. I mean, in my job is always look for what is the. Well, who's the right head coach now and who is the right head coach now might not be the right head coach in three years' time because the club might be in a different different, um, different uh, state at that, uh, at, that, at that time. So I think what done you here won't necessarily get you there and, uh, and that also applies for many years. And so what is, just tell us a little bit about your style of play then at, at Brentford. What, what can you describe it? What the, the playing philosophy is at the club? Now when we... we um, you can you can you can go you can go you can have a two different approaches to style of play. I think you can you can say, well, this is how I like football to be played. More like a take a romantic view. You know, I'm a, I'm a, I love to see this type of football. Uh, or you can you can look at it more rational and see, well, how is the game actually played, and is there a way you can try and be different? Um, set yourself apart, you know, exploit some of those inefficiencies and let that define your style of play. So, first of all, for us, and that, that, that when people come to Griffin Park, that they, we entertain them, you know, we play attractive football, offensive football. I mean, we're one of the most scoring teams in the championship, unfortunately, we're also one of, also one of the, 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 the teams that concede the most. Um, so, but, but, but secondly, we, we, try and, we try and look at for example, in the championship, I think many teams are not. Many teams lack a clear tactical concept, so we try and build that into the team. Define what are you know how we're gonna defend, uh, you know how we're gonna defend when we attack, you know how we how do we want to play, how do we when do we want to how do we want to create compactness and you know we have some we have some principles for that. Which we think that if we do that right, then it can be uh, an edge in the championship. So we're not having, we don't have a style of play just to have a style of play. We have a style of play because we think if it, it will help us win more games, and that is an important point. It's not just for the sake of having a style of play. It's actually because we think that if 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 eleven players, if we have a, not an individual but a systemic approach to the game, you know, if eleven players. Kind of know what underlying principle principles that we defend based on, then they can act quicker in the game and and therefore have an advantage. Do you think that you talked about you know entertaining the fans? Is that something you know conscious of the fact because you know they they're the paying public or because obviously the the natural thing would be made to say 
you know, pl maybe not playing such entertaining football would maybe lead to more less goals conceded or you know something along those lines. No, we definitely we, we gotta have a chance of being in the playoffs or promote next season. We definitely gotta improve our defense. So it's not that we 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 we, we don't care about that. We we definitely have to improve that. But I think it's uh, people people who come to to Griffin Park. Uh, they 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 uh, they come to to watch good football, and uh, and 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 we think that it's a way for us to be. I mean, we I think we're one of the best footballing teams in the championship. You know, possession team. Uh, we 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 creative. We got a lot of technically strong players. A lot of energy we play with, and that's how we want to be different. And I think that's 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 the question. Any team is gonna you know you gotta find something that you are better. Than at the opponent, no matter who the opponent is. Because I'm thinking of someone like Mourinho at United, yeah. obviously, who's at Chelsea, and I was that he very much, you know, plays a certain way, which he's had a lot of success with, and I think that's because he he's obsessive about controlling the variables. That's his thing. So it's not yeah. necessarily that aesthetically pleasing. Maybe for you know, United, yeah. for instance, are usually you know are used to seeing. You know, so that's 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 why I thought about you when you were talking about you know controlling those variables. How come you didn't go down that route? Maybe with some of your with your your playing philosophy. Uh, sorry, what, what do you mean by controlling the variables? Well, you know, what I'm saying is that, you know, Mourinho is famous for being obsessive about trying to control everything within the game he can. Yeah, and that's yeah, maybe yeah. why that's not, he doesn't play such attractive football as some other coaches. Uh, so, and he can, he's all about controlling the variables, right? So, I mean, you know, that's why I said, yeah. well... No, but, seen, but I think you can do that offensively as well. I don't think it, sometimes controlling the variables is associated with, you know, uh, defensive... Defensive football and uh, well, you know, having a strong defensive organization and things like. But I think you know uh, the concept of having a, an attacking organization as well and, and controlling controlling the variables in that part of the game as well. I think it's something you you, you, you can do. I mean, and I think it's something that is necessary to do in a game that's very fluid like football and and in, in many respects very 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 random. I mean, it's to try and reduce the Reduce the complexity. That's why I think you have a style of play. You, you want to try and reduce the complexity of the game and 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 be less vulnerable to uh, to randomness. And so and so, you know, another one of those randoms. Is it is it is it right saying you had like a throw-in coach at, at Brentford to work on specifically on the throw-ins and those that area? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's another, I mean, the, the, the conversion rate of long throws is actually higher than, quite a lot higher than the conversion rate of corners, and, um, and um, we, we think that's another, uh, it's another way, you know, but, but not just long throws, but also having a system for, 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 for short throw-ins and knowing what to do, and it's just uh, rather than just that being something that just happens and no, you know, we just try and keep the ball. Having a strategy for that is definitely a, a way of trying to to control the variables. And um, also speaking about the first team, is, uh, I read somewhere as well that do you have a player app where the players can um, um, register how they're feeling at the time and what sort of condition they are. Is that true? And then what, is, what sort of what do you do with that data? Um, we. Uh, you know that there is different. We do we use different types of testing when players come in in the morning to see you know what's their readiness to train. It's something that's done by the by the strength and conditioning and the medical department. Uh, we we try and work with sleep as well. You know we got we got a sleep coach and and we think there's a if we can get players to sleep more and sleep better, 
it's uh, it is um, there's a there's a there's an advantage there. So we try and we try and help help the players, give them tools to not only monitor but also improve their sleep patterns. It's something I thought a lot about actually when I did my my research for the Goldman effect. And I was I was in 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 Kenya and Ethiopia to study the middle and long distance runners, and I was just really blown away by the by the simplicity of their lifestyle. So they sleep, they eat, they train, and then they sleep, they eat, they train again. And they all their life were kind of focused on 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 becoming top athletes. And I call it twenty you they were really truly twenty twenty four seven professional athletes. And I think there's a lot that that football players can learn from individual athletes in that respect. Because an individual athlete is gonna take care of himself in a Completely different and more detailed way than a than a football player, uh, and I think that's a cultural thing in football as well. And uh, and and you know, I don't think, in my opinion, is I don't think football players train enough either. I mean, I think uh, I think you, you if there's a there's another big jump to be taken on the physical side in football if uh, if you if you get players to to train train more. So you're talking at first team level or, or young? Yeah, first team level. Yeah, generally, you know, first team level. I mean, the, 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 yeah, there's I mean, training. Training doesn't have to be. I think that's, that's something I realized in, in coming coming to England. There's a cultural cultural difference that a lot of English players tend to see uh, training. They, they don't feel they trained unless there's been a high intensity uh, intensity training, and um, and where I I, I think. In, you know, overseas, there's a bigger tradition for for slower tactical training, which can be very, uh, which can have a lot of impacts as well if you if if, if you do that right. But but and that it doesn't have to be physical demanding. And I think, for example, technology coming into football, virtual reality, things like that. You know, that allows um, that allows players to uh, to train more uh, without big physical demands. So yeah, coming on to your your, your book, the Goldmine Effect. So you talked about them about the Kenyan af- Kenyan athletes you spent time with. I mean, Jimmy, you, 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 there you talked about the importance of role models there, and actually that maybe that it's uh, you know maybe this wasn't God giving talent there, but actually it was something which was maybe developed in that environment. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a lot about I think it's a lot about culture. I used to say like you know, people ask me, well. Um, what if? Um, why do we don't have a, a, a Usain Bolt in the UK? You know, you know why, why, we don't have the genes or something like that. That's what they say. And I say, well, actually, there's a Usain Bolt in in in, uh, in the UK. He's not just he's just not a sprinter. He's a football player. And you know, if Usain Bolt were born in the US, he would never been a sprinter. He'd been a wide receiver in American football, maybe a basketball player. So what is that culture lead you to do? And actually, the best sprinter, I think he's called Gimili, uh in the UK. Is his last name? He used to be a, he was a reject at the Chelsea Academy. So, you know, you know what leads people to do in the, in, in Kenya and Ethiopia? You you become a farmer, or you become a long distance runner. That's it. You know, that's the two most prominent career paths you can have. And how? And, and, and so 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 it just becomes second nature for people to run. And so, what? Well, I mean, how much role does genetics play in that, though? I mean, do they have? I, I think it's. I think it's the axis. Uh, genetics is important. I think it's genetics, and in, in genetics means less 
in more complex sports than it does in very simple sports. Because in a complex, you know, it means genetics means more in sprinting than it does in football, for example. Sprinting is a very simple sport, and you got to move to a, from A to B as quickly as possible. If you don't have a lot of fat twist muscle fibers naturally, you will never become a top sprinter. Whereas in football, you know, you you may be not that quick physically, but if your decision making is good, then you can make up for it. And you know, you can play in a team that, you know. Doesn't you know maybe stand defend with a low block and you know therefore for example as a defender you don't you don't need that much pace so there's because there's a more complexity then you can compensate uh, but you can do that in, a, in really simple sports but generally speaking the way I look at it is that genetics is the access ticket to the game but it's not the decisive factor so if you don't have enough muscle muscle fibers you will never become a top world class sprinter. But because you have a lot of fast-twitch muscle fiber, doesn't mean you will become a, a top sprinter either. You know? But it's the access ticket to the game. It gives you the opportunity. It opens the door for you. But then all these other things, commitment and training and good coaching and all that comes on top. And moving us on to like then talent ID, because um, just tell us a little bit more about your performance and potential access and looking at trying to identify talent and the different forms of talent. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, a lot of people uh, tend to focus only on performance and overlook potential, and I can understand that because performance is visible, it's what you see, whereas potential is something you might see in the future. So, uh, but it's, it's, it's important for anyone, whether you work in sports or business, to try and identify some of those uh, potential indicators. And, um, and, and, you know, one of the examples I, I used to give is, is, um, is, is the importance of looking into uh, to, to context around performance to be able to spot potential. So imagine you have two sprinters and, and one is running 10.6 on the 100 meter and one running 10.2, then most people would pick the 10.2 guy because he's the fastest and they assume therefore the most talented guy. But actually, what if the 10.2 guy had the best coaches, the best training environments, the, the, you know, the early developed, physically developed, um, whereas the 10-6 guy, he trained on his own, never in a structured way at all. So when, when you understand that piece of context, then maybe a raw 10-6 can be better than a trained 10.2. And I think that applies to, to, to all kinds of fields. It applies to you know, football, you know, understanding the environment that has brought that guy, that player, to be what he is today you know, versus another player. It's, it's key to be able to spot potential. In business, I, I sometimes ask business people like, all right, if you if you were going to hire a salesperson, would you take the guy from Apple or the guy from Microsoft? And people tend to go for the Apple guy because he works for the most successful company and has the best results. But we also need to remember he's selling a product people are willing to lie and sleep in the street for just to get into the shop to buy. So maybe when you understand that piece of context, that good result in Apple indicate less potential maybe than an okay result for Salesforce and Microsoft. So, so having contextual intelligence is, uh, is key. And so, um, and so just tell us a little bit about the whispering talent and shouting talent and, and, and your thoughts on that and, and also about the, and then the late starters. Yeah, yeah well, um, um, the, I mean, the, the, late, the late starters are what, we, what some people call the late bloomers. Um, it's it's obviously people who haven't been that good early on, but they uh, but they, they come a bit from 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 behind, 
And I think it's back to when I think when I describe my own my own uh, footballing career that if you've been too good too early, then uh, then you don't have to reflect on how you can get better. You just you just you just think, oh well, I'm super talented, so why should I work hard? Why should I worry about getting better? You get what um, what some people would call a fixed mindset. Whereas if you if you come from behind, if you wasn't that good early on, then you have to uh, then you have to um, um, basically think about how you can improve. You you need to uh, you need to work harder than everybody else, and in the end, then you develop a growth mindset, and probably that's a better predictor for future potential than raw talent is. And Jax, you talked about Ronaldo and Michael Jordan, those guys being, you know, they really, yeah. the Brazilian Ronaldo, who, who I said, so you said that they wouldn't pay for his bus ticket as academy, and then a few years down the line, he's, up, he's one of the best players in the world. So them, the fact that they, the desire, and they, you know, they, that made them want it more, that pushed them over the edge to make them a, a, a performer in later on. Yeah, yeah. I think I think definitely that that desire to you know deal with you know the way you learn and deal with adversity, overcoming obstacles. That's the probably the real talent. That's the real talent. I, I suppose if we're relating that back to football. I suppose that's the the, pro- the problem, isn't it? We talked about earlier about you know the early t- talent ID and then the issues around that, and then you know about late late bloomers. I mean, because uh, when you you talk, you talk about the shouting talent, someone like Messi, who's you know. When he's young, yeah. he's obviously one of the best, and then players like Vardy who come come down late, later on down the line. So, as a as a footballing culture, how do we confront that problems with that, and you know what sort of things can we do to resolve those problems? Yeah, I think it's it's developing a better understanding of what potential look like, uh, and I, I I accept that's very difficult. Uh, it's very because it's complex to see who will make it, who will not make it. But I also think there's a, there's a there's an argument for not you know making final decisions about people too early. You know you can you can go down a route as a talent developer where you say I want a, a few players but dedicate a lot of attention to them to develop them, or you can go down a route which I tend to believe more in if it's possible for clubs and countries, which is uh, the, the 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 more players. Uh, for as long as possible, um, you, you want to have as many as players and keep them in the loop for as long as possible because you 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 it's very difficult to say how how they're going to develop. So you know making making definitive decisions about players too early is 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 is, is, is tricky. Also because those decisions are often turn into self fulfilling prophecies. I suppose it's always it's difficult. Like say in England, every club wants that big base, but with the ultra competitiveness and saturation of yeah. the market, if you like, of the academy system, it makes it very difficult. I know clubs in France who they, you know, their own towns have huge hundreds and hundreds of players in their base because, like you say, they have no one coming in to to pick it. So I mean, what could we do in England, just in London, in that environment, as you know, to resolve that sort of problem, where you know, to try and confront the issues with that? Yeah, I'm not sure I got the. The, the, the exact answer. I think, as I said earlier, the, sometimes the market you're in forces you to do things in a different way, and which may not be the ideal way, but you just have to accept those market forces. And, and I guess that's the that's the, the that's probably. I don't know if I was if I was in a if I was running an academy from under eight, um, uh, or it's not it's not completely clear to me actually what I would do. And um, talking about the performance environment. 
Uh, talk us a little bit about that. So you, you talk about when you visited the Jamaican sprinters and obviously, you know, the modest surroundings they're in in that world-class environment. Uh, just tell us about the importance or the, the un unimportance of uh, um, facilities in, in world-class development. Well, I, I came, I remember I came out to the training facility with D-Track and Field Club in, in Kingston and I expect this was yeah, the top modern training facility because the best athletes in the world train there. But, I, but well, all I saw was this grass track and then a, a, a gym with rusty weights. And I, I asked the head coach there, Stephen Francis, why, why he was not building a proper facility and he said uh, because he wants to show people that the, 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 the road to success is long and uncomfortable. He thinks that the, he, all you need is there to become a, a world-class sprinter, but there also has to be someone that tests his sprinters to see how much they really care. There has to be an obstacle, a, a, a choice they have to make of do I want to be comfortable or do I want to get better? And, um, and I think it's a really intelligent idea, to be honest, and, and, and something I, I really, key lesson I took away from my visit there. But I think if, you know, any company, any club should, should decide what's right for that, because there's, there's, in my opinion, two ends of the scale. There's, there's, there's the guys like Francis that says, you know, keep, keep facilities spartan and simple because they, you know, you want to test people's drive, you know, how much do they really care. And then you've got the other end of the spectrum, which might be like some of the top academies, football academies in the UK, where you say, well, we have these amazing training facilities. We create a no excuse environment. We give you everything, food. We get you transport to training, sort that out for you. But then there's no excuses for performing. Um, and any club, any organization have to have to choose what's right for them. When we talk about um, uh, talent development, I'm not in favor of a no excuse environment because I think it tends to signal have the opposite effect. It tends to signal to people that you already arrived. And that's the last feeling you want a young player to feel that I have already arrived. Um, so I think a world-class facility is for a world-class athletes, it's not for a rookie. Interesting. Okay, I know you're very busy. Just finally, uh, Rasmus, could, any advice you'd give for a young aspiring coach uh, who wants to reach the top level in the game? Yeah, I think one of the, one of the questions, I think sometimes anyone who want to pursue a top, you know, become a top, uh, have a top position in, in his career, the question they sometimes ask themselves is, how can I as quickly as possible become, uh, get this position, you know, whatever that may be. And I think that's the wrong question. I, and I see that a lot. I think the question is, uh, what are the experiences that I need to get as a coach to become a top coach, to be good enough to have a chance to become a top coach and get that position. That's the question you've got to ask yourself because then it's a growth mindset that drives that. You know, myself, I, I never had a career plan. I don't have a career plan. I don't have any ambition about, you know, having a top job in a much bigger club than I, that I work with now, but I, I just feel passionate for, for, the, for, the, for, for, for the content of the job and the project and the people I work with and I feel I learn a lot and I, and I think, you know, it's probably, I, I don't like career plans, to be honest. I, I think it takes you out of the present moment and, and it, 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 it kind of leads you to think, oh, I'm going to have this job because then I, when I get that, then I can get that job and so on. And then you, you, never, you, you never really perform in the, in, in the present moment. And finally, what about a player, a young aspiring player who wants to 
it's on the on the beginning of this road to this aspirational getting to the top. I think uh, as a player, you need to ask yourself if you if you really want to pay the price because there's a price to be paid, and um, and and you need to make a conscious choice about what it takes and also what that means for what you can do. And I think once you once you make that decision in your mind, uh, you can get it. You can get there. And very few players, even at, at the top level, you know, where very few players have made that decision fully. Rasmus Hankson, appreciate your time. Thanks very much. It's been fantastic. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much. Hi guys, Saul here. I just want to quickly uh, just give you a little bit of a heads up. I forgot to ask Rasmus there about where you could guys where you guys could find out more about him. I just need to give him a couple of plugs because he's got a couple of excellent books, both based around talent ID, which obviously in football is really interesting. So lots of transferable work there. Uh, two books called Hunger in Paradise and The Goldmine Effect. Uh, both books I've read and they're really good. And then they, these inspired me to contact him. So uh, check them out. They're definitely worthwhile. And I really hope you enjoyed that show. Thanks for tuning in to the MyPersonalFootballCoach.com Soccer Player Development Podcast. MyPersonalFootballCoach.com's dynamic ball mastery program is the world's leading online individual technical training program, proven and developed at the highest level in the English Premier League. Sign up now to train like the pros and take your game to the next level. Master the ball, master the game.